you know, you open the fridge and you see a memory. You know, it's not just food. You see the table and you see, I do anyway, I see them laughing and I see them chuckling and rolling. I don't, I don't see lunch. <laughs> it's obviously going to feed me, but it, it has something much deeper to it. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. In Oakland, I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. You're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. We are delighted to present this episode with guest host Leila Al-Haddad, journalist, documentarian, and co-author of the widely acclaimed cookbook, The Gaza Kitchen, A Palestinian Culinary Journey. Leila recently interviewed London-based author Judy Kalla, who wrote the new popular cookbook, Palestine on a Plate, Memories of My Mother's Kitchen. Look for an edited version of the following interview, complete with gorgeous photographs of some of Judy Kalla's delicious Palestinian dishes under Palestinian Cuisine is More Than What's on the Plate on electronicintifada.net. And now here's Leila Al-Haddad speaking with Judy Kalla. This is Leila Al-Haddad. I'm co-author of The Gaza Kitchen, A Palestinian Culinary Journey. I'm speaking with Judy Kalla, author of the wonderful Palestine on a Plate, uh, yes. Her first book, which was preceded by an app by the same name, yes. Uh, super excited to be speaking with her today for the Electronic Intifada. And uh, Judy, first I had to ask, Frika Cake, I'm intrigued. <laughs> what do you want to know? So how, how did it come about? Yeah, because I kind of was flipping through the book and, you know, mostly I was like, yeah, that's familiar. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. And of course, you have a lot of sort of modern spins on some of the recipes. Yeah. But that one, I was like, what? Freak? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I just basically wanted to create a cake that had all little elements that I think are very Palestinian, which is the figs and the pistachios and the frike, of course, and lemon and all the other, you know, citrus spices and things. So I, you know, decided that, you know, any sort of flour base would do. So I just whizzed up the frike and turned it into a powder and, and it just sort of worked. I think it's sort of quite nutty and has a savory texture, but then with the sweet figs and the salted sort of pistachio, it just all came together by accident as well as sort of trying an error, trial and error. Uh, And I was really happy with the results. I mean, I made it in loaf tins and they didn't work. They were just too heavy. They kept dipping. So that's why I really specified it has to be in a round tin. Um, otherwise you'll be disappointed with a sort of deflated cake. Um, but it just, I just wanted to make something not crazy, but things that elements of Palestine in a cake, I guess. Yeah, Um, no. And I should mention, I actually did make this cake yesterday and it was absolutely delicious, very distinctive flavors. And I was just very lucky that I have a small little fig tree that's, uh, uh, oh, you know, and yeah, very hard to grow here in Maryland, but but it is uh, you know bearing fruit, so I was able to use some of those, and mm. you know it was it was in, it was incredible. And I, in retrospect, I was like, well, that makes sense because you know basically wheat, and yeah. yeah so no, uh, well done. That was to me that was kind of one of the highlights of the book. I was like, that's really interesting. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I'm happy you did. I'm happy you tried it. Yeah, and um, I I did have a personal question of being sort of a specialist, I guess, in, uh, in, uh, you know, the cuisine of the, the broader Gaza region. I was really curious about the, um, 
the fennel, apple, and pomegranate salad and the pomelo shrimp yeah. salad? Because I hadn't, I'm very familiar with the fact that fennel is used in Gaza, but I had yeah. never heard of those two, those combinations before. And I didn't know if that was something um, or where you had come across that. Or My grandmother basically used to make these dishes for us, not necessarily the pink apple lady that I used uh, right, in sure. the book, but you know, the, their own version of whatever apple they had. And I just, the, the, the vinegar, the dressing was my own, uh, just a sweeter dressing for that particular salad. But the roman and the fennel and the dill uh, is very much part of that culture, I guess, in that area. And she uh, sort of it's really stuff from her that she gave my mom and everyone changes things by the time they come to someone else. Definitely. So with more inspiration from her um, salads and dishes that she cooked. And she was very, very creative and she had 11 children. This my, this specific, my mom's mom. And she, she cooked a lot and made a lot of different things all the time. They were very demanding <laughs> and, uh, and, and they loved their stomachs. So this is really where these particular dishes, actually all the, Let's be honest, all the dishes came from her and my teta and then to my mom and so on. So there's always some trace back right? Uh, with, a, with a few changes. Just absolutely, to... absolutely. So while we are on the topic of family, can you actually tell me a little bit about your family and, and sort of where they're all from and, and, um, and how they yeah. were? Yeah. And uh, so is your mom's mother, was she, where was she also from Lid or... She was she was born in Yaffa, oh, okay. and then when she married my grandfather, she moved to Alid. And my dad's mom uh, and dad were from Safad, but my dad's dad worked in Nazareth as a policeman. So they sort of have a little bit of everywhere, but they're all, you know, sort of close by to wherever they moved from. Um, and they, they were there all their grown-up life until they had to leave, um, and they went to Syria. Um, individually they didn't know each other they met while they were traveling there and they had 20 kids between them um, and my grandfathers had passed away uh, young um, and my grandmothers sort of built a new life in this building in Damascus with their very young kids and that's how my parents met really from almost birth um, and then Syria was home for them um, and then my parents moved to Qatar and then to London in 1981. So, yeah. Yeah. So, well, again, it, I'm sure very different, but very similar uh, experiences, I would say. I mean, it's sort of the quintessential Palestinian experience, right? Yeah. Being, uh, you know, displaced and then raised in various places. Uh, it's, it's very confusing, yeah. I think, to anyone that's not familiar with the Palestinian experience. Because same no. with me, I was born in Kuwait and, and raised in Saudi Arabia and then came here when I was, uh, you know, in college and so on. Um, but I wanted to yeah. actually, yeah. yeah, so it's... Like, it, why did they leave? No, why? no, it makes no sense. So they, so you're <laughs> Saudi or are you from Kuwait or right? Why did they leave? Um, you know, yeah. and that's always kind of held against you. I remember even as a child, um, you know, if you were the family of refugees, which, you know, we were, my parents actually left in the late 70s to, to seek work, yeah. employment or work, but my husband is... That's always held against you. Well, you shouldn't have, your family shouldn't have left. And if you did leave voluntarily for work, that, you know, so it's always kind of this stigma that you're yeah. dealing with. Catch 22. Yeah, absolutely. You don't know anything. It's frustrating. But. Absolutely. But, and then, again, the bridge, the bridge to food or food as bridge, right? Food as lens. 
Um, I, it's interesting that you mention and you know that you your love of food or food was sort of always present and speaking about your uh, your your uh, grandparents and siblings. I feel like I, I know them through the book. Uh, I had a very yeah. different experience in the sense of I don't know how, how familiar you are with my with my work, but my you know, I come from the sort of long line of women on my mother's side who were like, you know, all about, you know, women's lib and, and feminism and women in the workplace. And, and again, part of it fueled by what happened by the Nekba and yeah. everything that came after that. And this um, clinging to this, you know, this urgency to um, find one and keep one's place and, and survival, basically. And my yeah. grandmother was a firm believer that a woman's place, again, was in the in the workforce, in the workplace, not at home, not domesticity, not in the kitchen. And that carried on. And so I always longed for the, the kind of things that you describe. I'm like, I wanted my grandma. I wanted to curl up next to my grandmother and have her <laughs> cook for me. Even though she herself was not Palestinian, she was born and raised in Palestine. She was, um, her, her mother was a Kurdish uh, Damaskin and her, her father was Sherkesi. Um, but she okay. would recoil in terror if I ever asked her, she, even though she was an incredible cook, how to make a certain dish or what do you think? I, is that all you think I'm good for cooking? You know, so um, and, and my mother would cook as a matter of duty, right? Like she was a physician. She worked full time, but she had to have family to feed and she hated cooking and she found it tedious and it wasn't interesting to her. Um, and yeah. so I sort of developed my love of, you know, food and, and again, um, food as a lens and as a as a narrative device and much more than that, right? Sort of as a key to unlocking our identity and our past, maybe because of its absence. So I, you know, I, I note the striking difference that you, I don't know if I would call it more traditional or not, but it was kind of something that was always present. But then at a certain point, you talk about how, how um, your curiosity about your Palestinian history and background, um, or you developed a curiosity about your Palestinian history and background. And, you know, di you know and, and talking about Palestinian food being an identity. So maybe speak a little bit, bit about those two things. Yeah, I think, um, we, like you said, we had the opposite side. My aunties were all housewives and looking after kids. And my mom also, she was actually studying uh, to be in, pharma, in pharmaceuticals. And my dad and her married very young. And my sister came straight away. Then the next one, next one, next one, next one. When they were five, all of a sudden, and she was 30, like, oh, my God. Yeah. Um, and she didn't have time anymore. But she said, you know, sh she grew up with us because she was quite young and uh, really sort of pushed us to do what she didn't end up doing. And she didn't regret it. You know, I even asked her now when we were in Germany together, I said to her, you know, do you regret not working and just being our mum? And she said, no, because everyone is doing so well. And if I wasn't there, who knows what would have happened and where you would have ended up. And not, not that we would have been failures in life, but everyone's path sort of was almost designed by my mom by default. Um, she's very artistic and we're all into sort of arts in some kind of way, except for my brother who was snatched by my dad and sort of dumped in Qatar and just go and work there. But it, it, it really was like the home, home time was so important. After school, we'd all sit together and if we were not all there, we wouldn't eat. We'd wait until everybody came. And it wasn't about strictness. It was more just family time because my dad was so busy and my mom missed us. So um, dinner time was always together and talking about whatever, anything, anything goes. Uh, if we're upset, if we're happy, if uh, school and what have you. And we were very uh, lucky because she was very generous with her cooking and always made different things because my sister Maya doesn't eat chicken, Lara doesn't eat lamb, 
I eat everything. My brother loves everything. <laughs> Tanya likes everything with lemon and chili. So there was always something for somebody. And I, I, I started to see this um, as really something special and not ordinary because I went to my friends' houses and their parents would like dump something on the table and that's dinner and everyone's sort of going for it. I'm thinking, oh my God, where's the side of this? And what, but almost stupidly thinking we were normal and this is abnormal, but actually most people eat like that and not like us. Um, And I, I wanted to get to know more about it and I wanted to go into cooking. I always was with her, like I said in the book, since I was little. Um, and I didn't know anything really about identity or Palestine or whatever. I knew we were Palestinian and I knew that my parents were very proud of it. And they told us stories and stories and their parents' stories and their parents' parents' stories. So it was always something nice to talk about. And then when we started to grow up, we saw all the terrible things on the news. And, uh, you know, we don't need to, like, go over them on, on here. But you know, we all know what, what happens. And suddenly the image that we had was shattered. And I was like, what the hell is going on? And we started investigating and reading and learning. And um, I felt when I started to learn how to speak and read and write Arabic properly, um, I felt more interested and able to understand things better. Um, and and I just wanted to go through it with the food uh, because I I felt a lot of things when I ate, um, not just oh my god I'm starving and I want to eat. I didn't eat, we didn't eat for fuel. We yeah. ate for pleasure, yeah. <laughs> um, and everything has a memory connected to it and a feeling and a thought. And I felt I wasn't the only person that felt this way. Uh, and obviously my sisters are the same. And I spoke to other people, and this is sort of how this book was not written to be published it was written for myself so to speak and I was just documenting things and I really felt that we need a voice uh, like you and like Rawia Bishara and like myself and um, Dima Sharif other lots of people who are really making a positive uh, you know kind of dent in in the food world um, and giving an identity to the food I think what's frustrating Um, about this whole idea is that I was just having an interview with a lovely lady called Varet Gutman from Haaretz. Yes, I know her well, yeah. Well, I'll I'll get to that. (laughs) She she asked me, you know, like, do you get upset um, about all the Israeli restaurants that are opening in London and the Jewish food? And I said, of course I get upset when matlube is the dish of the day in an Israeli restaurant. I'm, I'm frustrated because the word is Arabic and it's Palestinian very traditionally and Sakhan was also the dish of the week and another place I said to her it's almost insulting of course they can make it and they can cook it and feed it to people and it's no issue but when it's labeled under a different it's like we make pasta and pizza and it, it, it's Palestinian pasta it's not we it, it, it's almost absurd to, to, to do things like this so I felt while I was writing it to to really sort of of course, all the food comes from everywhere and then it ends up in one specific area and it becomes their, 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 you know, sort of staple. But I felt frustrated and aggravated that people were enjoying sabbaha and saying, oh my God, amazing Israeli sabbaha, delicious breakfast. I'm thinking, uh, no, actually it's not. Um, and this is the book 
it's obviously not a political book, but it is by default because of the title. Um, and I really wanted it to have an identity, like your, you know, the Gaza kitchen and Palestine on a plate. I didn't want it to be, uh, you know, lemons and roses or whatever. Sure. I think they're beautiful titles. I just didn't think that it was me and it would lose the whole point of the book. Um, for me, in this instance, maybe book, if I write another book, book number two, three, five, they can all have different things. But the identity was to really be captured in this. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You touched on a lot of things, questions that I actually was about to ask you. So, um, I, you know, you, you spoke a little bit about, I mean, you talked about obviously food as identity. Um, perhaps even would you consider food uh, you know, or cuisine kind of as a locator or a, or a key, you know, to, uh, to connect with one's homeland in, in the absence of that homeland or uh, in the face of displacement when one, when there is no, you know, physical space. Physical. Uh, yeah, I think so. And I think, I think, um, you know, again, this all started sort of by default. I lost my business. I started working in an estate agency, just like as an emergency job. I didn't know what to do. Um, and my friend uh, was telling me, you know, why don't you start posting things about what you've been writing for the last God knows how many years? I said to him, and do what with it? Who cares about Palestine and Palestinians and no one cares about us. And, you know, it was stupid to say that because Within like a few weeks, he set up an Instagram account. He started creating an app for me with my recipes from my blog. And, huh. and slowly, slowly things started to grow. And it was a shock because he sent me a message saying, hi, you have a page on Instagram and there's like 7,000 people following already. And it's only oh, been two weeks. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. How's Instagram? I didn't even know what it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. and it just sort of escalated from there. And I really was surprised in a really nice way to think that people were actually interested and they're not Arabs and they're not Palestinians. They're other people who know about us and right. care about us right. and want to want to make people know that it is Palestinian food and you know you have the occasional Lebanese or Syrian or whatever shouting right. at me right. saying you know fasulia lahme is not Palestinian and I said yeah it's not but it's Palestinian because my grandmother made it while she lived in Palestine it's not saying it is the only you know place you can cook it it's just she didn't know anything before she left Syria, Palestine to Syria so it's her version of it uh, and yes we're close to each other and I, I didn't write this to say like all these are just Palestinian it's just what she cooked and made them her own and passed them on to us and really I think this sort of um, social media world helped to escalate this project um, which was really something private initially and then my friend made it unprivate yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I was really happy to see this it, it, it made me feel and then obviously lots of Palestinians were writing to me telling me this is great and thank you for showing this and telling people that you know this is what it what it is and you know correcting things politely without having fights and <laughs> isn't it funny how that you always feel somebody like over your shoulder or this need to be so correct and proprietous about, you know, who owns yeah. what and what, you know, yeah. No, um, so actually, and then just as a follow-up, um, do you feel, I know we talked a little bit about, you know, Palestinian food as identity and so forth, um, but um, do you feel there's more of an urgency to this sentiment when it comes to Palestinian uh, cuisine? 
Uh, you know, and sometimes, again, I'm being a little philosophical here, but do you, I sometimes wonder, does our food risk becoming, you know, more of a symbol ra rather than simply something we can embrace for what it is? Or do we necessarily need to categorize it? Can it just be both? You know, what's your take on that? I think um, both. I think it should be a symbol. I think, uh, you know, food is, uh, it, it, it gets people together, you know, uh, it's delicious, <laughs> which is one of the best things about it. I think I think it should be symbolic to to us uh, in a nice way, obviously not in a fanatical way. I don't think anything when it's an extreme works. And if you if you target things in a certain way, people will listen and they'll see and they'll try. Um, and I think it's important to have the identity. Um, definitely, yeah. I think it's something that we should keep going if we can as much as we can without you know I, a lot of people tell me things you know like you know how can you say that jews i said can't eat that say can't say it's their food i said of course they can say it's their food because there were jews living there before and my grandmother's neighbors were jews and they were a different type of jews to the ones that are coming now it's not the same so the ones who originally were there grew up with this culture and the ones who came later came from Eastern Europe and they came with different foods. So to that, for them to sort of claim it as their own after they've been eating cabbage and I don't know what uh, other pickled things that they were having, obviously this is very, uh, you know, condensed and cut down, but that's the frustrating part. It's not that we have to say that Jews can't eat it. It's absolutely not at all the point of the, the, the you know, this context of the story. It's just you cannot appropriate everything and we are becoming louder and we're lucky that we have social media and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. I don't know how to use them all, but uh, <laughs> well, you're a step ahead of me. I I'm active on Twitter, but Instagram, I still don't quite <laughs> get. So, and I feel bad. My brother's always saying to me, you're not taking advantage of social media. I'm like, I can't keep up with three kids and this. And you know, um, no, it's like, you feel like you need to pick one. No, you know, seriously, you feel like, I feel like I could just live my life just pressing buttons, you know, but. Don't you know, for do that, I, don't do that. Pick one, pick one and stick to it. Well, like, yeah, Twitter, I, no way, it doesn't, it doesn't work with me. I don't get it. I don't know how people think, do things. I don't know what it means, but whatever <laughs> way you use it. For sure. It's, for sure. It's good. And, you know, I see all these things about people being silenced and being blocked. My Instagram was blocked 50 times and I didn't know what was going on. Right. And I was calling my friend saying, I can't post anything. My page has disappeared. I don't know right. what. And then I get a message from Instagram saying someone's reported your page. Oh, my gosh. Blah, blah, blah. I was like, for what? And they said for racism. And I, you know, that being happened to me. I mean, I don't have my, I have an active blog now. But when I did, um, that happened to me once with blogger. And, they, yeah. and eventually me. they realized my page is about food and there was nothing racist about it. For sure. Um, it, it hasn't happened for a very long time. Oh, but, that's, you know, um, no, I did want to actually, again, you touched on something I, I was going to ask you about later, but I'll just jump to that. Um, cultural appropriation. So, you know, this is something we get asked about a lot or have been asked about a lot over, you know, it's always something that comes up. I think initially people assumed um, it was our project was kind of like a Kumbaya project. And then when they kind of read more into it, they realized um, that it wasn't, but we frequently get asked about this and we, you know, you, our usual response, we coined this phrase of um, hummus kumbaya, that we're, we're, you know, inherently opposed to the concept of hummus kumbaya um, yeah. and that it's not as simple as breaking bread and so forth. And like you were saying, it's, it's loaded, right? It's not a matter of just cooking the food 
it's um, it's it, what I, I like to quote this um, phrase that uh, somebody I was speaking with said that it's like eating the other, right? So it's invisibilizing, yeah. invisibilizing the other's history in the, in the words of Franz Fanon, devaluing their culture and their history and so forth. So it goes beyond, <laughs> above and beyond. But I wanted to ask how you, I mean, you touched on it a little bit, um, so you don't need to go over it again if you don't want to, but how you have personally dealt with this issue of appropriation and or invisibilization of Palestinian cuisine. I think um, the initially when when let's say when this book uh, I gave um, you know like uh, the manuscript to my agent and she sent it out to mo most um, publishers here obviously not publishers that have published the Middle Eastern cookbook because they're just not going to compete with themselves I was rejected by every single one of them because of the title and a lot wow. of them came back saying if she changes the title we might consider it and I told my wow. agent. I'm not living to write a cookbook. I have a life, I have a job, I make money, I survive, I'm happy. This book is an addition to my life, but there's no way I'm changing the title. Um, because that's the whole point of the book. If you're going to change a title, you've you basically deleted the book already, because that's the point. I wanted to say Palestine on the title. Um, so this was the first challenge of already trying to, not silence, but delete the most important word, uh, that, that makes the book what it is. And then my publisher really saw beyond the title um, and she loved the book and she likes to write specific books about very specific parts of the world, not just the Middle East. What she was this? Michelle? Michelle Buck? This is, uh, no, this oh, is oh, by oh. the UK. Ah, okay, got it, okay. So, and Michelle had already heard about me because of a lovely lady called Fiona Dunlop, who's a freelance uh, food and travel writer, who came to my supper club. She called him, and he's published a couple of her books, and she told him about me, and then he uh, was going to contact me, and then my publisher signed me up, and she contacted him and told him, I've got a girl that, you know, blah, blah, blah. But the point, again, about Palestine and appropriation, and, you know, I felt already slightly like on edge that already they want to change the book by calling it something you know my fragrant kitchen or my you know wow. whatever and it's not even as quote unquote, i use controversy again between quotations but it's not even remotely controversial in the sense of there's nothing in there that you but anyway that's but that i mean you you, you answered my next question which was about um the challenges that we faced yeah sorry go ahead asked the agents like to ask me to tell me like why they rejected the book um, and she said to me some people don't know where Palestine is it's not recognized as a country uh, how can they publish a book about a country that's not there and I said to her listen you're sort of treading on thin ice here you're it's almost she's like it's not me <laughs> I'm just reading what they've written um, I said no of course I'm not upset with you I'm just saying that you know I hope you said something um, because you're just saying that a whole group of people millions of us don't exists because the country is not recognized on a map it was I mean it is um, and then um, I explained to my publisher why I was writing the book and that I felt that in the last few years every Middle Eastern restaurant is Israeli um, literally every single one not one Arab owns them they're all from Israel and they've been brought here funded opening beautiful don't get me wrong they're delicious I haven't eaten in them personally because I just don't uh, but my friends have been and their food is great but it's and a million other things um, and it's a slap in the face I mean I truly a kick in your teeth um, <laughs> <laughs> and 
I got upset. Um, and I wanted to kind of show that actually there is a history to all this food. Um, and yes, it's very cool now to have tainer on everything and zata sprinkled on dukkha, whatever. But there was, this, this stuff came from somebody and somewhere and a people, and now it's labeled as something else. And it was very frustrating. Um, of course, I cannot change the London scene and it's not my point. It's just that I think people should know that yeah. there yeah. was something before Israel and those people created this style of cooking and this food that is now being broadcast and sort of shown all over the world. Um, and, and identity is number one for me. Um, you know, a lot of people tell me, you know, I'm not Palestinian because I was born in Syria. Uh, so yeah. That's fine. Yeah. I have no issue with that, but yeah. I am Palestinian yeah. because... Well, that's, that's what I was telling you about people always using this against you in some way. Yes, yeah. but you were born in Kuwait. Yes, but are you really... Pal you didn't actually grow up there, and so really? therefore... Right. Yeah. Really, really, <laughs> yeah, more yeah. than you know. For sure. Um, so it's, it's I, I don't fight with anybody about anything because I just think some people are ignorant. They don't want to listen, and I don't care about them. I, I know who I am. I don't need anyone to tell me, you know, where I'm from or where I'm not. And, oh, you know, one girl said to me, you know, uh, you know, you, your accent is so British. You can't be Palestinian. Yeah. I said, oh, oh, I did that. The <laughs> and I actually now I have to preface every talk I give by, I know everyone's going to, this is, you're not going to hear anything else I say. So I'm going to answer this question at the beginning. I have an American accent because like X, Y, Z, you know, I went to an international school. And the, so now that we've, you know, answered that, you know, burning question, I'm going to get on to my presentation. Yeah, it's yeah. ridiculous. So what, do you, what do you expect? And she's Palestinian and she attacked me and attacked me and attacked me. And I was sitting there, I said, so why are you so angry with me? Yeah, have I yeah, done yeah. something to offend you? I'm British. Uh, and I live in England and I've lived in London all my life. And I, what, 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 so I'm not Palestinian, she said, you're not Palestinian enough. Yeah, it's, and it's hard because then you sort of, you know, sympathize because I feel like we as Palestinians become not only territorial, but, but in a way, yeah. again, there's this urgency to protecting, our, you know, and parceling off our identities and our, you know, and everything else because we're afraid that it's, you know, going to be, you know, exposed and therefore corrupt or whatever. Um, yeah, so. I just feel like people want to take things away from me and me, yeah, yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? They can do whatever they like because right. I'm not here right. to like convert people. I'm here just to be me and write what I know and what I lived and how I remember things and what my mom used to tell us stories. And they were never, I don't remember once in my whole childhood, my mom ever talking or my dad saying one negative story about my grandparents living in Palestine. Um, not once, except for obviously when they were kicked out and they had to leave their homes and, you know, they have their keys like everybody else. Right. And she said right. to me, that was it. They never spoke again about anything. They spoke about their memories, obviously, but they they didn't want to relive the trauma of right. that. Right. I'm like, you know, like poems. Their life was literally poetry about home, uh, and yeah. and I. That's and that's so beautiful because it really, to me, counters this notion, this prevailing notion that Palestinians are per perpetual victims, and they teach their kids to hate. And da 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 da. I mean, that to me is so beautiful, and it really, yeah, it's no, it's poignant, and it it really. Um, it's, it's it's so emblematic of, of again no we don't this is what Palestinians do they celebrate life they they move forward yeah. and in fact it's funny you talked about um, 
about their, uh, you know, their, their forced displacement because I, it really irks me when Israeli writers say they fled or they left or whatever. Yeah. And I'm like, no, like, they did it. It wasn't just accidental. It wasn't like, let's just take our bags and leave. You know, <laughs> there's a war of independence going on and therefore we're going to just move somewhere I else. Like um, the people without an army. Yeah. So, anyway, yeah. that's just, it's just, it's you know, another but, um, but no, but back to, I mean, there are two things you talked about, um, your voice, which is you know, another question I had, but, I, but if you had anything else to add on any challenges that you might have faced uh, both in your career as a chef and caterer or publishing your book, feel free to, you know, to answer that. And then, and then the second question I had is about, um, about really what I, I did notice um, that you, you, your voice is very prominent in the sense that... Um, well, you know what, first, why don't you just, if you have anything else to add about challenges you, you faced in your I, career? I think the main, the main challenge was just about getting the book published. And, and when I found uh, my publisher, like I said, Jackie, she, she, she's an amazing woman and her, her publishing house is fantastic. And they really went full out on this. They, they didn't leave one thing, no, no expense spared. The book, the paper, the color, the binding, everything, you know, I, I saw it and I cried. I, I obviously knew how it was going to turn <laughs> out in my head. And we spoke and she said to me, what do you think? I said, I absolutely love it. I can't, the, just the paper, I keep looking at the pictures and the sort of matte shine. Uh, and she said to me, it's one of our super books. You know, we really went out on a limb here and, and, and we're so pleased with it. And, you know, she said, she, she, Obviously, they want to sell books, and this is their, the whole point of being a publisher. And she said to me, you know, we'll be fine just selling X amount of books just to kind of cover our costs. I said to her, I'm not happy with that comment because I would love for more. And we've already sold much more than what she had even mentioned to me. Uh, and I told her, like, what do you think now? And she said to me, I'm, I'm more than pleased. I know it's going to sell, but we obviously know that we have a lot of uh, restraint, restriction with the title, a lot of places people and places don't want to sell it or buy it wow but you know obviously the states is huge michelle bought a lot of books and he's yeah. sold out he's reordering some more and um there's a lot of buzz around it and she she is so pleasantly surprised i said to her the one thing you have to know about palestinian people is that we love each other and yeah. we support each other and there's a lot of us out there right and all these palestinians who are buying the book know how to cook they don't need a cookbook right. they're buying the book just to buy the book for sure um, yeah and everyone knows how to make I'm, not, I'm sure there are people who don't know how to cook but most of the people who bought it know how to cook and they're just happy to have it to say you know what here this is our support and she I'm sure is very happy about this and for me I'm happy uh, that the challenge that I thought that was going to be quite a big one in my head I don't care if a bookstore down the road doesn't buy it I right. care about you know, the majority of people who get to see it and, and can see that it's actually a nice and it's beautifully photographed and it has nice stories and people might have little memory jolts when they read something and right. connect with it. And it's not like, um, no, it didn't, it didn't happen the way I thought it was going to happen. I thought it was going to be faster, to <laughs> right. be honest with you. Um, yeah. Well, talking, speaking about memories, um, while we're on that topic, what, what are your, I mean, you say that for you, everything has a story, a feeling, a thought, a memory. Can you share yeah. some of these food-related memories with us? Um, for me, I, most of them are about my mom. Um, 
and she's a very beautiful woman and not just beauty beauty I'm talking like inside and out she really the house when when I used to live at home with them the house would feel like just four walls and empty when she wasn't in town and she'd suddenly be there and nothing would have changed you know in the house except for her being there and the smell suddenly would come out and the food and you can see things and it, it was really all for me I'm a very emotional person since I was little I I needed to like be around people that I felt like I cared about and they cared about me and it hasn't changed <laughs> so um there's no space for sort of negative and you know whatever so all all my memories are just really when I think if I miss my mom I'll cook something I won't make it like a omelette I'll go and make fasulia and lahme I make I actually made so much of it my freezer is full I don't I can't even, <laughs> how many months I'm going to be eating this and you know what I know I make it um you know, if, if my friends are coming over and I remember my mom would make it if it was our birthday or Eid or Ramadan or something. And I make them also in special occasions. And I remember, obviously, she's still around, thank God. But I I, I, I associate the things that are happening in my life and sort of replicate them um, because I remembered only good things uh, when we had these moments. And I, in turn, have good moments as well with them. It's not only about the food. It's the people and your Absolutely. life and so on. Um, In fact, if I've learned anything, you know, with raising my children, it's that some people are are social eaters. And so my son is one side, he, you know, if I could force him to sit down and eat whatever it is I've made, you know, be it matluba, he won't eat it. But if he's sitting with his, oh, my brother and his cousins and we're all there together, he will eat anything. <laughs> so you're absolutely I, right. It, it, it's something... You know, when I'm feeling down, I don't know why. I feel like, you know, sometimes, yeah, we all have bad days. And oh, and especially in this last year, uh, you know, having this, you know, health struggle. Uh, makes me feel safe. I don't even know what that means. But when I eat it, I feel like my whole family is in my stomach. And we're like all sitting together. And like everybody is there with me. And I could just be sitting, eating it by myself with my dog and watching TV. But I feel everybody around me. I love it. Uh, so I'd like, to, I'd like to cook the world a bowl, world, bowl of lukhiya. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it's silly things and just stuff that comes into my head. And, and they, come, they come a lot quite often. So I, I, I like to cook and cooking also takes my mind off everything i can't think of anything while i'm in the kitchen is it is it uh cathartic and therapeutic perhaps i know it is for me but i don't yeah totally, totally. i mean when when i started really really cooking and when i was in my 20s i don't know what happened to me i suffered from a really massive depression for nothing just, mm. just i think in our family the genes you know something yeah. happened to me it took a long time seven years to kind of get out of it but I I found, I mean, I wanted to cook before this happened, but when I started actually cooking, the only time that I didn't feel this sort of panic and blackness was when I was in the kitchen making stuff. Huh. And then I realized after, like, oh, my God, I haven't thought about anything for three hours. And then wow. I just ended up in the kitchen all the time. So for me, it helps me, you know, it makes me happy. And I felt like I could switch off from the world. Um, yeah. And that's, I recommend it to everybody. Well, that's incredible because I was really an incredibly picky eater as a child. I was so, I'm, I'm obviously, I'm still very thin, but I was sort of 
underweight and undernourished. My mother being a pediatrician was always super concerned. And it wasn't until I was much older, you know, that I began to develop a different relationship with food. And it was like you said, only when I started actually cooking and familiarizing myself with the food chain. And I know that sounds crazy um, that even my son. And so I got him because he was sort of similar that I got him to, to, again, be more, I'm a big believer in being in touch with the source of your food. And so we try to grow whatever we can. And I had him go through the whole process, of, you know, and now I, I may, make him cook too, because I realize when you are in touch with your, the source of your food and when you go through that whole process and when you cook your food, you're more likely to then develop a healthy relationship with it. And like you were saying, those memories and, and you know, that, that whole uh, uh, environment, it's not just about, like you were saying, eating uh uh, uh, to, to live, right? Um, it's not it's not fuel. You you, yeah. you need to know where your food is coming from and how to make it. I think you know. I remember like one of my fa- my mom has lots of sisters, but she has three: Dunya, Shahla, and Lamia. And they traveled like in a group of three, and my mom was the fourth. And they'd always come. They were the only ones who were allowed to have visas for some reason, so they were the ones who came to London. And we used to sit there. And Auntie Shahla, there's a sweet recipe yeah. for her in that book. I mean, she passed away in 2009. And all I remember from her, obviously, just the laughter. I mean, it was crazy, like little witches all sitting there laughing about (laughs) stupid things, Uh, you know, about someone's ripping their tights. And I don't know, why didn't you brush your hair? It's all like about the looks. I'm like, you're like 65, 70, just keep rolling. And we're making spiha to spiha to spiha. And time would pass and it would be five, six hours later. And we've made like 300 of them and they're in the freezer. And, you know, you open the fridge and you see a memory. You know, it's not just food. You see the table and you see, I do, anyway, I see them laughing and I see them chuckling and rolling. I don't, I don't see lunch. <laughs> it's obviously going to feed me, but it, it has something much deeper to it. You know, my auntie passed away and my she had made some spiha before she had died and they're in the freezer and, she, you know, it's been, what, five, seven years and they're still there. They're not allowed to be eaten. They're, she cooked, she made them, she made them and they're stuff, stuffed in the freezer and there's like a sign on them, like, don't touch. And they'll be there until God knows when, you know. And, and you know, it's, it's something so special that, you know, that there's something that she touched and it's there and it's no one's allowed to have it. And it's a memory. And, you know, it sounds maybe crazy, but I think it's a connection to people and to life and to memories and laughter. Absolutely. And in the case of a lot of the, the, you know, men and women that I spoke with when I was in Gaza, it's a connection to a place, you know, it was tasting a place that they're now forbidden from. Um, and, and, you know, 50, 60 years later, they're continue to make the dishes precisely in the way that they made it in their villages and their towns. Um, I think it's it's so important. And, you know, it should keep going on. And I don't think, um, you know, politics aside, uh, it's never really aside, but it's something that we need to keep doing. Because if I have a kid, I would love them to know about this. And, you know, I'm sure your kids later will know about it. And they'll be so proud that there's a book. (laughs) Don't get me started because I, the tragedy is that that I go out of my way to make all these incredible dishes. And and like you were saying, and I don't, I wish I had a sister and I wish I had, you know, aunts around me and so forth to help me make all this stuff. And the tragedy is they, they often won't touch it or they'll nibble at it. Or my husband just has a completely different palate being from the north. 
of Palestine and me being from the south and, you know, some some uh, he has some, uh, you know, digestive issues as well and, and so forth that limits what he can eat. But and then, you know, I say to them one day, I hope when you're in college or whatever, you're going to say I had a mother who used to go out of her way to make all these incredible dishes. And we were morons because we never fully appreciated her. I'm like, one day I want to hear yeah. you say that. So, they so. will. They will. Sooner. Sooner rather Soon, than later. Soon enough. I know you have to go. So I just had one more question, which was you talked a little bit about. I mean, we've, we've sort of touched on the political. Um, I couldn't yeah. help but notice that the book. And I don't know intentionally or not kind of really steered clear of anything political. And, you know, there was a mention of um, paying homage to the family, and I really love this, uh, paying homage to your family born before the borders were changed and shifted. Um, I, you know, speak a little bit about whether that was intentional or was this sort of, you know, the way I interpret it was, you know, like we talked a little bit about finding your voice and reclaiming um, the narrative uh, the Palestinian narrative and the experience in our own voices and telling the story the way that we want. But, you know, speak a little bit about, about that, if you will. To be honest with you, when the, when my publisher, um, uh, you know, told me that she was interested in the book, we had to cover a lot of things. Um, and talking about Israel, Palestine and territories and lines and whose country is it and so on was off topic it was it was not um it was not because she didn't see it and didn't understand it it's because she was writing a cookbook uh, she I was writing a cookbook she was publishing a cookbook she didn't want it to be political in in that context um because it already was with the title and you know there were some things that I sort of really stuck to when they said about the Nakba and the Palestinian exodus that was not in there and I kept writing it they kept deleting it wow. and I said this has this is a fact yeah like the Holocaust is a fact this is a fact like Hiroshima is a fact this is a fact absolutely it was like quite frustrated and then they said to me oh, okay sorry we have to do our research also because we need to fact check everything you know because they don't know as well they don't know about hmm. if people are not focused on a particular region they just don't know like I don't know a lot about the world I mean I try but I, I don't know everything so this was a little bit of a challenge and I really became very vocal in that point that if I'm not allowed to talk about how I really want to talk about the book there has to be some truths in here like this did happen and the borders did change and the country's name changed and uh, you know, I didn't want to get into the sort of sadness of Palestine as well, because you can't help but go in that direction when you start talking about lands being taken and trees being uprooted and people's homes being taken down and settlers' homes. You know, you, you, it becomes a tragedy. And I didn't want the book also to be that kind of tone. I wanted to show that we are positive and we are good and we are educated and we can cook and we can make beautiful cookbooks and be whatever we want to be. And people know the story as well. Um, and I'm happy that that was there and that little sentence, they were enough for me. And then also the, the quote from Rifat at yeah, the bottom, yeah, yeah. really something, I read it in his book and I, I tried to find him. I didn't know him. I was like hunting him in Facebook and Twitter oh. and... <laughs> 
And I saw my friend was connected to him. I was like, you need to get me in touch with this guy. My book is going to press and I need this quote. And yeah. he back to me straight oh, I away. Wish, I wish you told me because, you know, we co-edited a book together. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> this is like a year and a half ago. And then yeah. I just, um, you know, they said to me, oh, this is a really nice quote. I said, so yeah. And they said, you know, we really get it. You know, And I said, then, yeah, I think this is what everybody feels from back home. I obviously don't feel the feeling they felt I I can empathize and I can feel what they felt but I don't know the feeling of my grandmother I can just when I read that quote I feel that I was there um and and this was enough for me and I totally get their point about not making it you know Israel Palestine and Jews against Muslims because it's not what I'm about either I'm not that person I think you can educate and show who you are without bashing somebody else um, and, and just be sort of like a positive person about what you're trying to say rather than saying we're like this and you do this and we didn't do this and I think sometimes you, you lose yourself in that fight on your own um, and I didn't want that to be I, I feel proud that the title stayed Palestine that was also in negotiations with them for a two minute thought they had to think about it uh, and and you know, I'm happy they came back, that they were happy to keep it. Because I also said, I'm not going to write this book if it doesn't stay. And they really loved the book. Uh, and I'm happy that they saw past it and kept it. Because it is sort of a statement. Um, um, because, you know, I have, a, I have a cookbook here. It's written by a Palestinian woman. And she called it Lebanese something. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, that actually reminds me of... Um when I was, you know, young and, and in Saudi Arabia, very young, I remember my mother had this book that I still have it somewhere around here, written by a Palestinian woman from Haifa, um, mm. Mary Nazad, you know, Palestinian Christian woman in the 19, 1930s or for something like that. And um, she, my mother had used this as a reference. Her, her mother had given it to her. And um, one day she saw it in a bookstore in Saudi Arabia and some woman, some Saudi woman had slapped her name on it and just changed the title to Arab and Gulf Cuisine. And my mother was furious. She, she reprimanded the store owner. She bought all the books in the store. She you know, furiously scribbled out the title. And, and, um, and she even flipped to this page talk, which uses British mandate, um, you know, Palestinian measurements, and showed the guy and was so mad. But, but anyway, I just thought it was... I, and I still have the book. One, one day I want to translate it, because it has a lot of really cool, like, home remedies and things. But that's kind of what it reminds me of. So Crazy, yeah. It's it's yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's a funny yeah, little anecdote I always and I kept the book for that reason because it's just yeah yeah but, you have to you never <laughs> give that book away to anyone yeah. but yeah I, I think I think in general just just to be a good voice for Palestine and Palestinians and you know I, I don't people criticize me like oh you never lived there and you're not there I don't care I am. Palestinian and my parents are Palestinian and we grew up Palestinian and we ate Palestinian and we live Palestinian and you know I support whatever I can to to do whatever positive stuff I can do and the book is really a love story you know to my mom to my grandmothers to my aunties and my sisters and brothers and to Palestine that I don't know I know Palestine through my family and I think I'm happy to know her that way um because it's a beautiful image that they put in my mind. Um, and, and that's really 
the, the point of the book. It's for people to also love it and to, to enjoy it and to see what they want to see in it. Um, and hopefully they will like it. <laughs> I'm sure they will. Judy, thank you so much. Can you please uh, tell our listeners where they can purchase the book, I guess here in the United States and maybe elsewhere uh, for whoever, yeah. whoever might be listening. Uh, the easiest thing, I, I've managed to like find all the websites that are selling the book um, in, in the UK. It's on Amazon.co.uk and the States. It's through Interlink Publishing where 50% of that book purchase goes to a charity in Palestine. And then you can also buy it for Canada on Amazon.com and so on. So palestineonaplate.com will link you to all these different sites, uh, which is my website named after the book. And, um, yeah, it just makes everything much easier for everybody than having to find it individually. But Absolutely. there are lots of links. So Fantastic. It's, it's and I'm sure that uh, Michelle would appreciate a little plug-in here for Interlink Books since I'm a huge fan of them as well. So I do yeah. encourage listeners to go to www.interlinkbooks.com and purchase the book um, from there. And as Judy mentioned, 50% of the proceeds will go to a uh, Ramallah-based uh, uh, charity. Uh, it's in Bethlehem, oh, actually. Bethlehem. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it's a house of friendship Okay. Uh, for children. So that's a great, great reason to buy it through them. But they only sell to U.S. addresses. So if ah, you're okay. in Canada, I see. you have to go through Amazon.com. So. I see, I see. Well, thank you again. It has been a pleasure, and we wish you the best of luck in your uh, the book sales and your career and so on. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. Uh -huh. That was journalist, blogger, and cookbook author Leilel Haddad interviewing Judy Kalla, author of Palestine on a Plate. For more, visit palestineonaplate.com and read El Haddad's feature with an edited version of this interview with Judy Kalla. Palestinian cuisine is more than what's on the plate on electronicintifada.net. That's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. For news, information, cultural features and reviews, and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and if you're listening on iTunes, support the Electronic Intifada podcast by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, Thank you for listening.